Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1 9 if you need to, to get at, sort of sweep out the cobwebs of your head and get all the distractions out of the way. We'll get ready to study the Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, for its clarity, for its perspicacity. We thank you that you have revealed your word to us in such a way that uh, it, it communicates across cultures, across ages, across language barriers, that in your omniscience and omnipotence you have provided a sufficient revelation for us. Above all, we thank you for your grace that has given us everything we need in Christ. We pray that as we study your word, we might be strengthened and encouraged as we push forward in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I have a couple of, a couple of announcements I want to go over. First of all, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a little event here on Friday night. The Lagos people are, have developed a very sophisticated Bible study tool called, some people call it Logos, some people call it Libronics, they're not sure which is which. Uh, it's sort of like the relationship between uh, Microsoft and uh, Microsoft XP. One's a program, one's a company, so I'm not sure which is which. Anyway, I use it all the time, and it's got different levels that you can go into, and they have just released their uh, 3.0 version, and as part of their promotion, they have a big RV that's traveling the country, going from city to city, and looking for churches to host them where they can uh, do a demo of their their new software and their new program. And so, if you're interested in something like that, or would li- or you know somebody who might be interested in something like that, let them know. That will be at seven o'clock on Friday night. The Uh, 9th of June. Also, because this program has some really sophisticated features to it that I'm not sure how to use, and they're really built on studying some people who want to study details about Greek syntax, really calls upon someone who really has a working knowledge of Greek and Greek grammar. Uh, I was trying to get the the, uh, man who is conducting this to give us a little more of uh, give pastors who know Greek a little more of a detailed um, exposure and instruction on some of this for that Friday morning. But when I was in Denver on Monday, I went to they it was in Denver, and so uh, George and Mark Perkins and Arch and I went to it. And I talked to the guy who's doing it, and some of this stuff so new, nobody knows how to use it. So I'm still trying to decide, uh, but there's many things he's not going into. This, this Bible bus tour isn't designed as an instructional thing. It's a promotional thing. So I don't, I'm not sure whether I'm going to do a Friday morning special for pastors or not. We'll just see what happens in the next couple of weeks. But if you're interested in that, it's, it's a good overview and with, I know there's a lot of you who have programs, have I mean, have computers, and would like to have something with a little more uh, punch to it. And it is designed for the English student. It's not designed to enter into from a from from somebody who knows the original languages. Uh, it has all those features to it. But if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, great. Probably 80% of the people who use it don't either, including the people who've had Greek and Hebrew. Also, I've got a letter here. Every now and then we get tremendous response from people who are on tapes, and every now and then or they download or whatever they do now. Um, so I thought I would read this to you. I found some encouragement in this. He says, uh, I've been a member of your tape online ministry for a little over a year before my, uh, when my, since my uncle introduced me to it. Prior to that, I floated around between several megachurches here in Oklahoma 
and in Georgia, where I was in the Army for the past four years. I'm nearly finished with your series on 1 Corinthians and have learned so much from it, from dispensationalism to believing in the literal six-day creation to the pre-mill, pre-trib view, which is much more encouraging than the preterist view of close family members. Now, when you sit there and you hear me talk about some of these things, you say, why do I need to know that? You always have to remember there's a lot of people out there who need to know it. I grew up in a very legalistic church, then on to the mega churches where entertainment comes before content. I just wanted to write a quick note thanking you for your ministry and your commitment to teaching doctrine. I will continue to listen to your Bible classes and have found a good doctrinal church here in Edmond with a DTS-trained pastor to continue to be a part of a local church. I pray your ministry continues to grow and influence this country and the rest of the world. God bless. So it's always nice to get that. In fact, we had one. I'm going to try to have somebody find it. But there was a very nice note from a pastor in New Jersey who came across uh, the material, and he said, I've got out of the Lord, got out of Lordship salvation and into an f- understanding of free grace salvation and understand dispensations, and I'm passing it around to all my pastor friends, and uh, they're all listening. So you just never know what is happening out there and who's listening and the impact that all of this is ha- having. Okay, let's uh, get back into our study. We're still in Hebrews, but we have sort of uh, migrated around through a little lesson in discernment the last few weeks, talking about the subject of the leading of the Spirit, answering the question, is the leading of the Spirit the same as divine guidance? In the last two weeks, I spent time in Romans chapter 8, because there, there are only two passages in the epistles that talk about the leading of the Spirit. There's one passage in uh, Luke 4 where Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, but the context and the, and the dispensation and everything are different. So we only have two passages in the epistles related to the spiritual life of the church-age believer where we have uh, this, this uh, vocabulary of the leading of the Spirit. And almost everybody down through the ages has taken this to mean divine guidance. In fact, my uh, good friend and, and former professor... Uh, Charles Ryrie writes this quote in his book, Basic Theology, which we have examined. And he emphasized in here uh, from his quote on Romans 1, excuse me, Romans 8, 14, that the leading of the Spirit is a confirmation of sonship for sons are led. And in that, he's almost saying that leading is a confirmation that you're a believer because every believer is led. So if you're not led by the Spirit, maybe you're not saved. Uh, I just find that what he has said here is somewhat questionable. He goes on to say this work of guidance is particularly the work of the Spirit. Romans 8.14 states it, and the book of Acts amply illustrates it. And then he cites several examples from Acts, which we looked at, and saw that none of those relate to this. They all involve special revelation. And I'm emphasizing to you that it's important to be... uh, students of the Word, and to look verses up and not just take somebody's word that this verse teaches some point that they just said. So then he, so he goes on to say, This ministry of the Spirit is one of the most assuring ones for the Christian. The child of God never needs to walk in the dark. He is always free to ask and receive directions from the Spirit himself. And see, that last sentence is so dangerous because it sounds like if I'm in a quandary... I can ask God and He'll speak to me. And I know Dr. Ryrie doesn't believe in that. Uh, It just either he took this out almost verbatim out of a book he wrote, maybe one of his first books on the Holy Spirit, and it's just stated uh, very poorly. But we're taking this as a sort of an example of how to be a, a discerning reader, how to develop critical thinking skills. When it comes to analyzing what you hear from the pulpit or what you read in any kind of Christian literature, there's a lot of Christian literature out there that's very good. There may be 1% or 5% of it that's a little screwy, but you can learn a lot from the other 85 or 90, 95% that's there. But you have to have your, you know, sort of your uh, doctrinal radar on and be paying attention to what they're saying because 
every now and then something kind of goofy slips in like we have here. The second passage, which Dr. Ryrie doesn't even mention in that brief paragraph, that relates to the leading of the Spirit is found in Galatians 5.18. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is the first, first epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote it to correct a problem a doctrinal error that was creeping in to the congregation in Galatia. Galatia was in the, I take the South Galatian view, sort of the south central part of of what is modern Turkey. And what had happened in Galatia was that Paul and uh, Barnabas, Timothy, had gone into that area on the first missionary journey when they went to Lystra and Iconium and Derbe, and they uh, taught the gospel, and they had many converts. That's where they first met Timothy. And then uh, after they had left the area, there were this group of Judaizers that came along. And the Judaizers were Jewish in their orientation and background that had uh, accepted Jesus as Messiah, but they were still including the uh, obedience to the Mosaic Law along with faith in Christ. So it was a it wasn't a faith alone in Christ for salvation. It was a faith plus something else. It's not enough to just trust in Christ alone for justification. You have to trust in Christ and keep the law and enter into the uh, covenant of Abraham by circumcision in order to receive the blessing. And so this becomes a major problem because a work salvation is being introduced by these heretics after the Apostle Paul had uh, gone to Galatia. So the, the, the epistle has to straighten out this legalistic error in two ways. It's affecting their view of the gospel and it's affecting their view of the spiritual life. And the real con- the conclusion that deals with the spiritual life comes in chapter 5. And so this verse, if you are led, or but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, must be understood in terms of its overall context. And again and again, I emphasize the fact that we have to know context. You know, the, the old saying that a uh, uh, text without a context is a pretext. Or my favorite one is if you take the text out of the context, you're left with a con. So here's the context. Galatians 5.16 through 18. In 5.16, a major shift takes place as, as everything from chapter 2 has been building in this epistle to this conclusion. And Paul says, I say then, walk... In the Spirit, literally it is an instrumental dative. It means walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible for you to complete or to fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the lust. 5.17 is, is parenthetical to emphasize this battle that's going on that every believer experiences between the Holy Spirit who is indwelling every believer and guiding them with the word and the sin nature. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. They're polar opposites. It's one or the other. One thing you run into with, with um, it's very popular in the way many people teach the Christian life is you can be a little bit carnal and a little bit spiritual at the same time. And they'll say something like, well, we all do things by mixed motives. It's a little bit good, a little bit bad. You're a little bit selfish and a little bit uh, generous, but uh, it's a mixed bag. Well, Galatians 5.17, it's either the flesh or the spirit, one or the other. It's none of this mixed motive kind of stuff. Let's deal with what the text says. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, that, sec- that last phrase is very important for understanding what is going on in the background. 
so that you do not do the things that you wish. In other words, the believer that's not walking by the Spirit won't be able to do or bring to fulfillment that which he wants to do. And that is Paul's experience in Romans 7. We'll deal with that in a minute. Then there is a conclusion, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The verse in verse 18 must be understood in the context of 5.16 that so we'll see that being led by the Spirit is just another way of talking about walking by the Spirit. And that's the same thing that we saw in our study the last couple of weeks in Romans 8. In Romans 8, 1 through 14, Paul talked about these two different two polar opposites in the Christian experience. You're either walking according to the flesh or you're according to the Spirit. Your mind is set on the flesh or it's set on the Spirit. You're living according to the flesh or you're living according to the Spirit. These go back and forth, back and forth, and they're all, uh, they're just different ways of saying the same thing, whether you're talking about set on the flesh, walking according to the flesh, living according to the flesh, or just according to the flesh. It's all describing the same thing, that is, the believer who is living and operating on the sin nature. On the other side, set on the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, living according to the Spirit, or simply according to the Spirit, is talking about the believer who is in right relationship with the Holy Spirit and fellowship with God and is walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And then and we saw in Romans 8.14, when it talks about being led by the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit become the what? The huios, the adult sons of God. So being led by the Spirit is just another way in Romans 8 of talking about walking according to the Spirit. We'll see the same thing here, that this phrase, being led by the Spirit, is the, the flip side of walking by the Spirit. And it is not something that is mystical. It's not based on some sort of subjective impression. It's based on a clear path that's laid out before believers. Now, to understand this, we have to go to an even broader context, and that is the context of the book of Galatians itself. So just as we walked our way through Romans... We're going to walk our way through the book of Galatians to see how Galatians 5:16 to 18 fits within this whole pattern or structure of what Paul is saying in this letter to the Galatians. What's important to understand is that too often we just get so microscopic in our analysis of the Scripture that we lose the picture. We understand the verse, but we don't fit it within the overall flow of what is being said. And there's a place for microcosmic exegesis, but there's also a place for uh, macro exegesis, where we're looking at the overall flow of what is said in a, in a letter. Remember, when Paul wrote these, they were received by a congregation, and the pastor would stand up and read it from the, the first verse to the last verse. And he wouldn't take a whole lot of time explaining a lot of the details. He just read the whole thing straight through. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Galatians 1. The first five verses give us the introduction to the book. There's always a standard greeting. Paul identifies himself as an apostle, uh, not from the source of men or from mankind. That's not the source of his apostleship or through an individual uh, person, but it's through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He is an apostle because Jesus Christ called him an apostle, designated him to be an apostle, and sent him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And he includes all the brethren, that is, other believers who are with him, to the churches of Galatia. And then he gives the opening uh, greeting, Grace to you. And peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's always this connection between grace and peace in these letters. Grace or charis was the standard greeting of any Greek to another Greek. Just as we say howdy or hello or how are you, a Greek speaker would say charis, and it means grace. And if you were a Jew and you greet somebody on the street of Jerusalem, you would say shalom. And so you have grace and peace. Is that a bird I hear? We have birds here. 
You know, I thought I left that when I left Preston City. They're going to love it when they see this video. We used to have these birds that would nest in the attic right over the pulpit and just drive me nuts. So, just, just like Connecticut. Okay. Grace to you and peace. What Paul does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he takes these two common greetings and he links them together. Because it is the grace of God that is the one and only source of real peace for the individual. It is because of God's grace that we have peace with God. That's the argument of Romans 5, that because we're justified, we have peace with God, reconciliation. Grace to you and peace from, the God, from God, our, God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. And in this verse, we have the... A synopsis, just a snapshot of what he is going to develop in this whole epistle. Number one, Jesus is the one who gave himself for our sins. That's focusing on phase one, salvation, what we call justification, a recognition that Jesus Christ died for our sins as our substitute. So this summarizes the message that's going to be covered in the first section of the book, the emphasis on justification from 1.6 through uh, 2.21, the end of the second chapter. He gave himself for our sins for a purpose, indicated in the purpose clause, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. This isn't, it doesn't say that he might deliver us from hell. It doesn't say he gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the lake of fire. He says he gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from what? From this present evil age. In other words, that he might deliver you from worldly thinking, from cosmic thinking, from living in the power and under the bondage of the sin nature. So that that is talking about sanctification. Jesus justified you so that you could go through experiential sanctification. And so the significance of sanctification is what's covered in 3.1 through 6.18. So you have two, two key doctrines that are the foci of this epistle justification in 1.6 to 2.21 and sanctification in 3.1 to 6.18. Now let's just have a little sidebar here on these two terms and their connection. If you were born in the Middle Ages any time after uh, Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo, who was the considered the prime Roman Catholic theologian, then you thought that justification was a process, that it occurred over time. And we use the term progressive sanctification. You've heard that many times. Well, they understood justification to be progressive. And justification and sanctification were progressive. Now, the problem with that is that it leads to knowing you're justified by knowing you're sanctified. Wait a minute. Sanctification is a Christian life. What they're basically saying is the only way you know you're justified is if you're living the Christian life. If you're not living the Christian life, you don't know you're justified. So you can't really know that you're saved or have an assurance of your salvation unless you're living the right kind of life. And so if you're living the wrong kind of life or you commit uh, any of the list of sins that are that century's worst sins, and every century and culture has a different list, then if you commit those sins, then, well, you're probably not a Christian. You're just not saved, because the only way you know you're saved is by what you do. Uh, Jody Dillo, who wrote the book Reign of the Servant Kings, which is a book that I, uh, as soon as somebody gets serious about seminary or going anywhere in, the, uh, in formal academic training, that's the first book I have them read is his book, Reign of the Servant Kings. It's been out of print for a while, just came back into print, and uh, had a meeting with him in Denver on Monday as well, which was very, very enjoyable. First time I've had a chance to sit down and really spend time with him. He has written about five books in his life, 
his book on tongues, which was only in print for a couple of years in the early 70s, is the finest book uh, on, on, the, on the tongues issue that I've ever read. And then he wrote uh, a book for his doctoral dissertation was on the water vapor canopy in Genesis 1 and all the implications of that. His undergraduate work was in engineering. And then he wrote the book on the reign of the servant kings, which is the finest discussion of the difference between lordship salvation and free, the free grace gospel. It's about seven or 800 pages, and it is basically a systematic theology for understanding all the problem passages that people go to for uh, understanding the gospel and whether or not your lordship or free grace. And what we have to understand is that the backdrop of all this is these issues that came out of Roman Catholicism and in the Reformation, an understanding that justification and sanctification were separate. That justification was punctiliar. You ever heard that word before? Punctiliar, a point in time that the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you're justified. God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. His, his justice sees that you possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and declares you justified. And that's what the Reformers understood. That's what Martin Luther understood. Later, Calvin understood it. It is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The, one of the uh, mottos of the Reformation, if you will, was the phrase sola fide. By faith alone. Sola, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. So, and sola gratia, by grace alone. So, this, this is biblical, this distinction between justification and sanctification. Lordship salvation comes along and makes the same basic claim that Roman Catholicism always made. It blurs the distinction between justification and sanctification so that uh, if you trust Christ as your Savior, you don't know if it's a true saving faith until you have worked out your, uh, you've lived the right kind of life. Dillo in his book, Reign of the Servant Kings, calls it experimental predestinarianism. Don't you love it? I just love these terms. Experimental, because the only way you know if you're part of the elect is through the experiment of your life. So you don't really know you're saved unless you live like you're saved. If you don't live like you're saved, then you didn't have the right kind of faith. But you see, the Bible talks about faith generically. Everybody believes you're sitting in a chair. When you sat down, you didn't walk up to it and knock, knock it around a little bit to make sure it would hold you. You just trusted that it would hold you, and you sat down in that chair so that, that it, it, the same faith that you exercise there toward the chair is the same kind of faith you exercise toward the cross. There's no different kinds of faith. Faith is simply believing something to be true. And uh, in, in language, we understand that faith always has an object. It's the object that is significant, not the kind of faith. It is the object of faith that saves. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then the object of faith, Christ on the cross and his death, is what saves you, not the faith. It's Christ's work on the cross that saves you. It's having the right object. But if your object is that, that I'm saved because I trust in Christ and I'm baptized or I'm living a good life or I'm joining the right church, then you're not saved. It's a false gospel because whenever you add any human effort to the cross, it dilutes and destroys the cross. It waters down the gospel. And this is what Paul gets into in Galatians 1.6. He says, I marvel, I'm astounded that you turn so quickly from the one who called you it by means of the grace of Christ to a different Gospel, a heteros gospel, a, one of a different kind. Uh, it's not the same kind of gospel. It, it, the message is different. It's a faith in something else other than Christ alone. And he says, which is not another, that is another of the same kind, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven 
preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As I said again, let me say it one more time. If anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. I mean, twice he mentions this. And it, 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 the word there for accursed is anathema. And this is strong language from the Apostle Paul. He's virtually saying if anyone preaches another gospel, let him go to hell because it's a false gospel. So the emphasis here is on uh, faith alone in Christ alone. And he goes through an explanation of, of his defense of the gospel. He had to defend it in Jerusalem because Peter had waffled on the gospel after he had first taken the gospel to the Greeks and there were the Judaizers coming along saying, well, it's fine and good that these um, that these Gentiles are getting saved, but they got to come under the law. We can't have a bunch of unclean, immoral Gentiles getting, getting saved. They've got to uh, enter into the Mosaic law and come under the provisions of the Mosaic law, otherwise they're not saved. So he completely blasts Peter for that, uh, and, and explains that that encounter uh, when, with Peter in Antioch uh, in verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall at that encounter for Paul reaming out Peter because he screwed up the gospel? Well, Paul goes down to explain the basis for the gospel in verse 15 and 16. And there we read, We who are Jews by nature, I think I have a slide of this here, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, and then it begins with that um, word knowing, actually it should be translated as a causal participle from the Greek, that because we know something, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That no matter how good you are, no matter how consistent you are, the works of the law can't ever, have never, will never bring justification to somebody. Because what a person needs is perfect righteousness, and that cannot be achieved through the obedience of the law. So he says, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. When we have believed in Christ Jesus, he goes on to say, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Three times he makes this point that the works of the law can't bring justification. Justification only comes because you put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus is the object of the faith and only Jesus. That's why we say faith alone. Faith isn't accompanied by anything else. Faith alone in Christ alone. The object isn't accompanied by anything else. That, and, and it's really important, especially if you're evangelizing, if you're witnessing to somebody who's coming out of Church of Christ background or Roman Catholic background, they hear this verbiage all the time, right out of the Scriptures, you have to believe in Christ, we're saved by grace. And what you have to do is make sure you understand what they mean by these words. Don't just pull out your gospel gun and shoot them with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Ex ask them some questions. Well, what do you mean by grace? I remember talking on the phone to a person one time, and, and I was doing a lot to help out my folks. My mother had had a uh, series of strokes, and this person said, Well, you certainly are earning a lot of grace. Well, they were Roman Catholic, and see, that was their concept of grace. It, had, it, it wasn't your concept of grace. It wasn't the Bible's concept of grace. It was something that is worked for not something that is freely given. So just because somebody says, I believe you're saved by grace, take a little time and say, well, what do you mean by grace? I'm glad you believe in grace. What do you mean by it? You know, pull out what they mean by these terms. Christ died for my sins. Well, what do you mean by that? Is that the only thing? If you didn't go to church, if you never participated in the sacraments, if you never took Mass, if you never did any of these other things, if you committed a whole bunch of mortal sins, would you still go to heaven by trusting in Christ alone? 
And if the answer to that is, well, I'm not so sure, then they're not saved. They haven't understood the gospel. It hasn't, they're trusting in Jesus plus something else, plus their own works, their own obedience. And Paul says that is another gospel. That is a different gospel, and you're not, you're not saved. They're trusting, they're trying to be justified by works. So chapters 1 and chapter 2 deal with justification by faith, and there's a key word that is missing from chapter 1 and chapter 2. And that's that first word that's up there. I'm going to put together a little chart of three key words in, in Galatians, kind of like the chart we had last week in, on Romans. And these three words come out of Galatians 3, 3, and 4. And the first is pneuma, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in chapter 1 or chapter 2. Not that he's not present as a, you know, in, in regeneration. Paul's not talking about that. He's focusing, on, uh, he's focusing on justification. We don't see the word pneuma appear until Galatians chapter 3. And four times the word pneuma appears in Galatians 3 in reference to the Holy Spirit. Two times in Galatians 4, it's not the focus. And then eight times in Galatians 5 and one, times in, one time in Galatians 6. So if you want to study what's happening with the Holy Spirit in Galatians, where would you go? Our passage in Galatians 5. Okay, let me back up. So there's a, there's a shift that takes place between Galatians 2.21 and Galatians 3.1. One and two dealt with justification. But then... He reams them out again, just as he did as he started to, to talk about the gospel. He really laid into them. And in three one, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. He just pulls them up and he says, I want to know one thing. Just one thing. Pay attention. Did you get the... Uh, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, how did you get the Holy Spirit when you were saved? Did, was it because you were obeying the law or by uh, hearing with faith? And we've just gone through this whole explanation of justification that you're saved by faith alone, justified by faith alone, and that's when you receive the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 3 he says, Are you so foolish? Second time he said foolish. He can tell Paul is really uh, wound up here. Are you so foolish having begun by means of the Spirit? Now how do you begin by means of the Spirit? Justification. The Holy Spirit makes it clear to us. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. He says, Having begun by means of the Spirit... Are you now, now is what, after salvation or at salvation? After salvation. Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Okay, now let's, let's sort of bring this into our vernacular. Being made perfect doesn't mean sinlessness. It means completion. It's our verb here. It's a form of our verb. It's epiteleo. And epiteleo means to bring something to completion or to bring it to maturity. So he says, having begun by the Spirit, you were saved because of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in salvation. Are you now trying to grow, not by the Spirit, but by the flesh, the sin nature? Now let me ask you a question. What were these Galatian believers doing to try to grow? Were they a bunch of immoral, antinomian sinners out there just raising hell all the time? No. They're out there trying to obey the law. But what, is, what does Paul say? He says, you're trying to reach spiritual maturity by the sin nature. So he's equating obeying the law apart from the Spirit with with uh, uh, apart from the Spirit, with, with being perfected by the sin nature. He's saying trying to be moral and living the law apart from the Holy Spirit is nothing more than the works of the sin nature. In other words, all your morality and ritual and religious activity is all generated by the sin nature. 
because you're leaving the Holy Spirit completely out of the equation. Now, there's three key words that are in verse 3. And those three key words are spirit and made perfect, epitaleo, and flesh, sarx, which is normally a reference to the sin nature. Three key terms. We don't see these three key terms connected again until Galatians 5.16. Now, if you have these three key terms in this rhetorical question in Galatians 3.3, and Paul doesn't come back to mention those three things together in Galatians 5.16, that ought to raise a red flag that Galatians 5.16 is finally going to answer the, the question and explain the issue that is raised in, in 3.3. But he has to go a long way around the barn and chapters four, the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 in order to explain the role and purpose of the law and its relationship to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant before he can finally get back to explaining the role of the Holy Spirit because they've been confused. They're, they're trying to get grace through, and get saved or sanctified through circumcision. And circumcision wasn't the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It was the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis 18. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant was obedience to the Sabbath. So the, Paul is, first of all, going to show that, that um, Abraham... The Abrahamic covenant guaranteed that in Abraham all nations would be blessed, and he quotes that in verse 8 of chapter 3, but he doesn't connect that to, to circumcision. He says in verse 9, So then those who are of faith, not those who are circumcised, but those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. See, that's an allusion to the same thing he does in Romans, in Romans chapter 4, showing that we're justified by faith just as Abraham was justified by faith because Abraham is the Old Testament example for justification by faith alone. Genesis 15:6. he believed God and it was accounted to him or imputed to him as righteousness. And then in verse 10 and following, he emphasized the fact that the law it doesn't bring life it brings condemnation. It brings a curse. And then he goes on to explain the importance of the law and the purpose of the law and the covenant. But what we have is different, that the law's purpose wasn't to bring righteousness. The law's purpose was to act like a, a school teacher, a, a pedagogue. And it was to teach people that you can't be justified by being moral, that no system of ritual or sacrifices can bring uh, bring justification. But in contrast, after faith has come, that is faith in Christ, verse 25, we're no longer under a tutor. The law was temporary. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And the emphasis here is on our adoption. As many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So here he's talking about the result of faith alone in Christ alone and a baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 4, he goes to deal with uh, the law versus the Spirit, and he uses the situation with, between uh, Sarah and Hagar down towards the end of the chapter uh, that one is a, a picture of the Spirit, one's a picture of the flesh, and that which was produced through Sarah is according to the Spirit, and that which was produced according to the flesh, uh, Abraham's efforts to uh, produce his own heir, is according to the flesh. And so after he develops this analogy between Hagar and Sarah, Sarah representing those who are relying upon God and trusting in him, and Hagar is the uh, sin nature solution, he says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac, are children of the promise. Just as Isaac was a child of the promise in the Old Testament and a result of grace, so we, as church-age believers, are the result of grace and children of the promise. But he says, As he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. What terminology ought to catch your attention in that verse? It's Galatians 5.29 according to the flesh versus according to the spirit. That's the same uh, phraseology and contrast we saw in Romans 8, and we're going to see it again 
after Galatians 5 in verse 17, that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. So he's building his case that those who are of the law are of the, are, are of the flesh. They are the product of the sin nature trying to achieve the, the blessing of God, not resting in the promise and the provision of God's grace. Then we come to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is where he begins to talk about the Spirit, and eight times he mentions the Spirit, and he emphasizes the fact that it's in Christ that we're made free. The law is nothing more than bondage, just as Hagar was uh, the uh, bondwoman. Now let's skip down to verse 16, where we've been heading. In verse 16, we have the second use of of this basic root teleos or teleao. We had epiteleo earlier in 3.3. Um, in three, three. Now we have teleo in 5.16. I say then, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. What's Paul saying? He's saying you have two alternatives. You can either walk by the Spirit or walk by the flesh. What we have here in the Greek is a very uh, emphatic construction. It is a double negative. Now, if you use a double negative in English, one negative cancels the other negative. You don't say, I'm not never going to do something, because that means you will do something. But in Greek, you would use these two different words for no, u and me. And if you join them together with a verb in the subjunctive mood, it was the strongest way of saying that something could never, ever, ever happen. It's impossible. And so what Paul says here is, if you walk by means of the Spirit, it is impossible for you to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. Now, a lot of people say, well, if I'm walking by the Spirit, how then do I ever sin? It's a matter of negative volition. I got a great illustration of this years ago when I was, I was in Poughkeepsie, New York, speaking at a church, and I came down from my hotel room to, ready to be picked up, and as I got downstairs and the doors opened, there was, uh, I discovered there was a geriatric convention in town. And there were about 50 elderly people in their walkers going in front of me, and I couldn't come out of the elevator. And every one of them is just walking along with their canes and their walkers. And I was teaching on this that night. I'm thinking, walk by means of the Spirit. They're walking by means of their walker. Now, if you're walking along with a cane, then you have to think about it a little bit, unless you've done it for a while. But it's a step-by-step procedure, and that's what walking is here. It's the Greek verb peripateo, which emphasizes the walk step-by-step aspect. And each time you do, you're thinking about it, and you're walking by the Spirit. Now, let me use an analogy. If you're walking by means of a cane, you won't fall down. What do you have to do to fall down? Stop using the cane, and you'll automatically fall down. And that's what this is talking about. As long as you're leaning on the Spirit, as long as the Spirit is the guide, then you're not going to fall down. But as soon as you decide to stop using the cane, stop using the walker, stop using the Holy Spirit, you'll fall down. That's how sin occurs, is we choose to stop being dependent on the Holy Spirit. Now, is this some sort of mystical uh, inner lightism? No, it's not, because the Spirit guides through His Word. So it's this, this thing that we see over and over again in the New Testament that the Christian life is through the joint effort of two things, the Word of God and the Spirit of God together. It's never one uh, without the other. So Paul begins in verse 16 with the command to walk by means of the Spirit, and you won't sin. As soon as you stop being dependent on the Holy Spirit, the sin nature is that default position, and you just instantly go over to uh, operating on the sin nature. It's one or the other. They're mutually exclusive. This is uh, absolute spirituality. You're either walking by the Spirit or you're not. It's not a little bit or a little bit more, but it's one or the other. And then in verse 18 he says, but if you are led by the Spirit. So the Spirit's out in front. If I'm walking by the Spirit, then I am following the Spirit. 
But it's not just guesswork. It's not when I wonder what the Holy Spirit has to do with this, where He wants me. So let's skip ahead. The verses in between talk about how you know whether the Spirit is producing anything in your life. You have the works of the of the sin nature versus the fruit of the Spirit explained. And then at the end of that discussion on the work of the flesh in 19 to 21 and the fruit of the Spirit, the production of the Spirit in 22 and 23, in verse 25 we read, If we live by means of the Spirit... And we do. It's a first-class condition. We live by the Spirit, don't we? At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit regenerates us and we have eternal life. Uh, Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces life. So if we live by the Spirit, and we do, let us also walk by means of the Spirit. And here we have a completely different Greek word than the one we have in Galatians 5.16. Galatians 5.16, Paul uses the word peripeteo. That was a famous Greek word because uh, when um, Socrates would teach philosophy at the academy, he would just walk around out in the portico among the, uh, among the uh, columns and he would teach outdoors. He just went around with his students everywhere and talked. And so they were called, they, they walked around and following him, so they were called the peripatetics. So peripateo means to walk step by step. But the word that we have in verse 25 is a different word. It means stoikeo. Stoikeo. And it means to follow in ranks. It means to follow a set path. The only way you can be led by the Spirit if you're following a trail. He lays out the trail. He's the trailblazer. Walking step by step with the Holy Spirit uh, in verse 16 is combined with uh, following the, the, the leadership of the Spirit, following walking along the stepping stones in verse 25. And the stepping stones aren't a matter of guesswork. In order to follow them, there has to be something objective there that you can see and you can discern. And that's the Word of God. The steps are laid out in front of us. Those stepping stones are laid out in front of us, and we walk along step by step. So the Spirit isn't just, it's not a matter of guesswork. What does God want me to do? He has a path that He lays out, an objective path, an objective trail that is laid out in the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is guiding us and leading us down that trail. So when we talk about the leading of the Spirit and divine guidance, what we're talking about is that the Holy Spirit is going to lead us and guide us only through Scripture. It is clear uh, what that path consists of. We don't have to guess about it. That tells us as believers that we have to really learn the Word of God. And the more we think and meditate on the Word, and the more we, we plumb its depths, the more we're able to think biblically about circumstances and situations in life. And the, the uh, one who is working behind the scenes to help us understand everything and put it all together is the Holy Spirit. It's like, a, it's like one of those programs that you run on your computer that's running in the background all the time. You don't see it. But you know that it's it's running, it's it's making other things work, and so you don't focus on that covert action. You focus on what you're doing in typing your Microsoft Word document or working with your PowerPoint or whatever the program is that you're doing. But behind the scenes, you have a virus protection going on, and you have other things that are going on behind the scenes. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, and He works together with the Word of God. So, Paul brings to conclusion that initial question he asks back in verse 3 of chapter 3. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect or complete by the flesh? No, you can't. You can't be made perfect by the flesh. And he equates the flesh with the law. Now, this is the problem in Galatians 5.18. Uh, he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. There is the contrast between being led by the Spirit and being and operating on the law. In Galatians 3.3, the contrast is between the Spirit and the flesh. 
So if the contrast here is spirit versus flesh, and the contrast here is spirit versus law, then law and flesh are equated to one another. Now you say, well, wait a minute, I thought Paul said the law was good. He did say the law was good within its proper purpose and function. As we close, turn back to Romans, where we were last week in Romans chapters, and this time we'll go to Romans 7. Romans 7 is sandwiched in the reality of our position in Christ in chapter 6 and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. In chapter 7, Paul's trying to live the Christian life by the law without the Spirit. Spirit isn't mentioned until Romans chapter 8. And he's extremely frustrated. He's trying to be so good and so moral and to apply the law so consistently, but it doesn't work. And he comes to this conclusion. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual. In other words, there's something good and valuable about the law. But I'm carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, what is he doing? Trying to obey the law. It says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that is to obey the law, that I don't practice. No matter how hard I wanted to keep the law consistently, I just can't do it. But what I hate, that I do. No matter how hard I'm trying to obey the law, somehow I always end up sinning. See, morality is a product of the sin nature. Spirituality is distinct from morality. Jehovah's Witnesses can be moral. Mormons can be moral. Muslims can be moral. But that's not the Christian life. He says, verse 16, If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells dwells in me. In verse 18 he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I don't find. What he's saying here is basically simple. I want to do the right thing. I want to please God. And I'm working so hard to do it by obeying the law, but ultimately I always end up in sin. And he can't figure out why, no matter how moral he's trying to be, he always ends up doing what he doesn't want to do, and he always ends up right back in a pool of, uh, pool of carnality. Verse 19, For the good that I would do, I do not do. But the evil I will not do, that I practice. That's what I end up doing is the very evil I don't want to do. And, and it's because he realizes the evil of covetousness that he's coveting whatever his neighbor has, the Tenth Commandment, that he realizes that, that, that he's a sinner, that he can't get, he may convince himself he's following the other nine commandments, but when it comes to not coveting that mental attitude sin of lust, he always falls apart at that point. Verse 20, he says, Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. I'm inherently a sinner. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me in captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. That's, no matter how much he tries to be moral and to be good and to please God without the Holy Spirit, it just falls apart and there's this conflict within him and he just feels torn. He feels like, a, like, a, like he's got multiple personalities inside of him and he just, you just feel the frustration in verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of God. See, he connects the sin again, sin nature again, to the law, um, excuse me, the law of sin. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's chapter 8 where he focuses on the real solution which is I can't do it myself. I have to do it by living according to the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, and being led by the Spirit. And the Spirit leads through the Word of God. The Spirit of God plus the Word of God. It's not inner, mystic, inner light mysticism. It's not some sort of liver quiver. It is clear, objective uh, guidance down the path by God the Holy Spirit. So when we come back, to Hebrews next time, 
we're going to have greater appreciation for what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he addresses his audience and he tells them in chapter 5, he says, for, uh, But solid food belongs to those who are mature, that is, those by reason of use, that is, consistent practice, have their senses exercised or trained to discern both good and evil. This is how we practice discernment. You think through things, but you have to have that frame of reference of Bible doctrine in order to do that. So next time we'll come back, finish up Hebrews chapter 5, and get ready to go into the warning passage in Hebrews 6 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening. Help us to understand these things, to walk consistently by means of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will produce your character in us, the fruit of the Spirit, that we may glorify you in all that we say, think, and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.